God, I don't know. Something about firefighters. Welcome back to The Common Law, the best and only podcast about the Minnesota Supreme Court. My name is Mark Thompson. I work at Nichols Castor in Minneapolis, and I clerked for Justices Lilla Haug and McKaig. And my name is Allison Key, and I clerked for Justices Strauss and Hudson. We've got a case today about firefighters, unions, and municipal managerial policy. But before we get to that, let's do some legal news. First in legal news, we have a pair of pieces published in Minnesota Lawyer written by Kevin Featherly. The first one was on May 24th called Winners and Losers in the Safety Judiciary Budget, as well as one from May 27th, also from Kevin Featherly, called Gilday Warns Lawmakers of Consequences. So part of the intense budget negotiations at the Capitol during the end of this most recent session included the requested funding for the courts, which is included in the public safety judiciary budget. So according to the first piece, the conference committee for the public safety judiciary budget did not reach a compromise resolution on how they were going to spend the allocated funding by the time the regular session ended on May 20th. However, the conference committee for the public safety judiciary budget, per the article, had, quote, near round-the-clock overtime negotiations to figure out how they would spend $125 million in new public safety judiciary money. So in this budget allocation, then, part of the compromise resolution they reached included, quote, a 2.5% per year across-the-board pay raise for all judges and court employees, However, the article notes that that's less than the 3% per year pay hike that the governor had requested. Also in the deal is that the Board of Public Defense will get $6 million for new attorneys, but that's less than half of the $12.7 million that was offered in the House version of the bill. The Senate offered nothing. Importantly for the judiciary, however, is that, quote, the bill creates just one new judgeship for the 7th Judicial District. The article notes that the courts had asked for two That prompted a visit and some stern remarks from State Supreme Court Justice Lori Gilday at a joint House committee hearing. So according to Kevin Featherly's second piece, quote, Supreme Court Chief Justice Lori Gilday issued a sternly worded statement to a joint information-only hearing of the House Public Safety and Judiciary Committees and expressed frustration that the legislative and executive branches have neglected a key request of the judiciary the government's independent third branch. She acknowledged the budget does fund most of the branch's modest targeted request, but it omits a judgeship needed for the 7th Judicial District, which includes St. Cloud, Alexandria, and Little Falls. According to the article, Gilday said Minnesota's entire judiciary is experiencing heavy caseloads because of spikes in child protection, drug, and serious crime case filings. She said the 7th's needs are particularly acute because it is so, quote, underjudged. She said, the judgeship is really important, and I wanted the committee to hear that from me. So a couple of things. Um, one, I think it got slipped in there that the uh, public defenders got screwed again, just uh, running theme on the show. Note. Yeah, bar- barely even noted because it's so regular. Two, 
Um, people might not know this, but the justices are each assigned uh, like a judicial district. I may get a, a little of the details wrong here, but uh, for various administrative purposes uh, for, you know, literally keeping the, the court system functioning. And so they uh, will go to those districts and visit them and collaborate with people, et cetera, uh, throughout the year. Um, and I wonder if that administrative setup ends up informing the figure with which uh, Justice Gilday was advocating here, because they, they do know the people um, and the judges out in, uh, you know, out state or, or close to the metro, wherever. Um, it's, it's kind of a personal issue for them. And people may not realize it, but uh, the justices and, and the chief in particular are, are really tasked with making sure the court system just runs. Um, and like it, it does as long as nothing bad happens, but sometimes like the funding isn't there and it falls on the plate of largely the chief. So uh, it's a huge job that she and they undertake in addition to just judging cases. So we've seen an oral argument, obviously, she can be a sharp advocate for her positions and all Minnesotans should be thankful she uses that same vigor to defend the integrity and resources of Minnesota's courts. So we're lucky to have her at the helm. Uh, she does a great job of it. Next is a story following from a rather explosive report from the International Bar Association that uh, chronicled a serious problem of harassment in the legal profession. Um, so this is a piece in Minnesota Lawyer entitled Third of Female Lawyers Sexually Harassed. Uh, it says that an International Bar Association survey based on online responses from about 7,000 attorneys from 135 countries found sexual harassment in the industry is common and bullying is rife. Uh, according to a press release from the International Bar Association, the report also highlights a perception paradox whereby countries in which workplace bullying and sexual harassment are topical issues and where the domestic professions have taken steps to address the misconduct often report particularly high rates of bullying and sexual harassment. Um, so the Minnesota lawyer piece uh, about this reports that uh, over one in three women and one in 14 men have been sexually harassed uh, in the legal profession and that 75% of the episodes of sexual harassment were not reported. Um, so both a continuing culture of harassment itself, as well as barriers to reporting. Um, as always, I think we can assume that all of these numbers are likely low, um, and it's a disastrous epidemic in the legal profession and elsewhere. I agree those, those numbers tend to be lower than um, actual numbers based on just lack of ability to report or other barriers to reporting. But I think the report mentioned that because it was an online survey, the numbers also could theoretically be higher just because people who have experienced bullying and harassment are more likely to respond to those surveys. But even if those numbers are inflated, which history suggests that they're not, that's still a significant problem if we're starting from a third of female lawyers are sexually harassed. So certainly something that should be part of conversations in the profession going forward. Final piece of legal news is about the lake naming controversy that a lot of Minneapolis seems to be talking about. So according to a Star Tribune story published April 29th, the State Court of Appeals ruled Monday that former Department of Natural Resources Commissioner Tom Landwer lacked authority last year to change the name of the lake to Bidet Makaska. So the lake's name legally remains Calhoun. The article continues that the court's ruling is pinned on a 1925 law, which said it unambiguously denies authority for the DNR to change the name of a lake which has existed for 40 years. 
Lake Calhoun was referred to such in writings dating to the early 1820s. So the Court of Appeals ruled that only the legislature can change the name after four decades. It sounds like the DNR has indicated it intends to appeal this Court of Appeals ruling to the Minnesota Supreme Court. From the Minnesota Spokesman Recorder, they write, according to the Minnesota DNR Commissioner Sarah Stroman, the DNR is very concerned with the implication of the appeals court's ruling for our ability to work with county boards to reflect community standards in how the state's waters are named. We have long worked with counties in eliminating offensive or derogatory names. We are also concerned with another aspect of the Court of Appeals decision. Specifically, it opens the door for people to challenge a range of final agency decisions well after established appeals periods. This presents the potential for considerable disruption in the normal order of government decision-making. Just to bring up us up to the present, uh, we're in a kind of weird chaos as far as the practical effects of all this. So I know a number of people, uh, including the mayor of Minneapolis, have uh, vowed that they're just going to keep calling the lake Pademikaska. I think there are still like signs up uh, that say that. People have not universally agreed to abide by this court ruling. Um, but if and when this case goes to the Minnesota Supreme Court, we will let you know. On to our feature case today. It's called Firefighters Union Local 4725 v. City of Brainerd. So here's what happened. In 2015, the city of Brainerd restructured its fire department. The restructuring, according to the city, was in response to some serious financial difficulties that both the city generally, as well as the fire department specifically, were facing at the time. It's undisputed that in 2015, the city of Brainerd found itself in difficult financial straits. It did not have enough money to make capital improvements, its debt service fund was not keeping up with its debt, and its cash reserves were dangerously low. In addition to these citywide problems, there were problems that were unique to the fire department. In 2014, the fire department lost a grant that it had been receiving and that it was using to fund two firefighter positions, and so they had to lay off two full-time firefighters. It also needed new equipment. It needed a fire truck because the last time that any kind of capital equipment had been purchased was in 2007 when the city purchased the ladder truck. In the process of this restructuring, uh, the city eliminated all full-time paid firefighter positions. Instead of these full-time firefighters, the city of Brainerd Fire Department planned to use on-call firefighters to handle its emergency fire services. The city of Brainerd still has a fire department. The fire department is now staffed by so-called volunteers or paid on-call individuals. The reason we're fighting about this is because those full-time firefighters were represented by a union, and the Firefighters Union Local 4725 claims that by eliminating all of these positions, the city of Brainerd effectively abolished the union. The fire department is now staffed by so-called volunteers or paid on-call individuals who are not in a union. All of those positions exist. The fire trucks are still there. Fire operators still exist. They're just not members of the union. The city has conceded, it appears throughout, that you have essentially abolished the union by laying off those individuals. Am I correct? In response, the Firefighters Union Local 4725 sued the city of Brainerd, asserting, among other things, that the city had engaged in unfair labor practices in violation of a Minnesota statute governing labor relations. The law under which they're bringing this lawsuit is called the Public Employment Labor Relations Act, or PELRA for short. The 
critical section of the act that, would be, that the appellate court properly cited is section 179A13, subdivision 2.2. That prohibits governmental units from taking action that interferes with the formation, the administration, or the existence of a labor union. So the district court dismissed all of the union's claims initially, but they were appealed, and the Court of Appeals reversed and sided with the union on all of its PELRA claims. Uh, the Court of Appeals concluded that the city of Brainerd violated PELRA, which prohibits interfering with the existence of an employee organization when the city, quote, during the midst of an operative bargaining agreement, unilaterally eliminated all FEO positions, effectively dissolving the union. Because in this case, we had, there was a collective bargaining agreement that went into effect on January 1st, 2015, nine months into that collective bargaining agreement, with 27 months still remaining on the agreement, the, the city abrogated that contract. There is one caveat in Pellera's prohibition against interfering with the existence of an employee organization, and it'll be central to the case today. The caveat is that, quote, a public employer is not required to meet and negotiate on matters of inherent managerial policy. So a lot of what we'll do today is try to define the bounds of inherent managerial policy. The law defines it as areas of discretion or policy as the functions and programs of the employer, its overall budget, utilization of technology, the organizational structure, selection of personnel, and direction and the number of personnel. So addressing this caveat to Pellera, the Court of Appeals concluded that, quote, it is not an inherent managerial policy for an employer to reorganize a department when the reorganization interferes with the existence and administration of a union. The city of Brainerd appealed that decision to the Minnesota Supreme Court, and now we're here. So at the Supreme Court, then, the issue presented is whether the city's restructuring of the fire department constitutes an unfair labor practice under PELRA, or whether the restructuring constitutes an authorized exercise of the public employer's inherent managerial authority. It seems to me the, the real nub of the issue that we have to decide is, given those financial straits and that budgetary concerns are uh, within the inherent managerial policies of the city, does that nevertheless give the city the right to eliminate all of the positions uh, of a particular bargaining unit when such an action uh, is an unfair labor practice, is, is specifically prohibited by the other provision of, of the statute. So the tension between the employer not able to interfere with the union and the employees having to respect the employer's inherent managerial authority as it relates to budget and personnel decisions. The attorney for the city of Brainerd is uh, Pamela Vanderweel of the law firm Everett and Vanderweel. May it please the court, counsel. Good morning. My name is Pam Vanderweel. I'm here with my colleague, Anna Yunker. We're here on behalf of the city of Brainerd. And we'll start you off just by giving you the, a general sense of how the city's framing its argument in this case. There's a, the court today is presented with a single narrow issue, and that's whether a public employer is permitted to reorganize its workforce to address a, pre a pressing financial and safety need if the reorganization results in the elimination of all the positions in a bargaining unit. So the city of Brainerd here is arguing that PELRA requires a balance between the interest of the public employees, which are covered in the PELRA statute, 
which prohibits interference with any employee organization, and the interest of public employers to manage the city within the inherent managerial authority defined in Section 7 of that same statute. And what the city is saying in this, posi- in, in this case is you do have to maintain a balance. You have to maintain the balance between, you know, you, you recognize the employee's rights, yes. But at the same time, you have to consider the employer's need for flexibility, especially in a situation where you're talking about vital public services, vital public safety services. So the city's attorney here is arguing that the city was truly, truly in desperate financial times. And in those times in particular, the city and all municipalities need to have the authority to restructure its departments and its city functions to survive. And that this need to restructure its organizations and operations in these desperate financial times does have to be balanced or at least not completely eclipsed by Pelra's prohibition on interference with employee organizations. What would happen if the firefighters, if the union's position is taken, is that the city just would not be able to reorganize a fire department if it had to for, for budget reasons, for public safety reasons, if the effect is to, is to impair a union in some way. It just would hamstring cities or employers from being able to do that. And that cannot be what Pelra intended. An interesting outer bound of the city's argument here is that the city attorney ends up discussing, but actually doesn't truly end up advocating for the plain language analysis here. So according to the city's attorney, a plain language reading of Pelra, especially the inherent managerial authority provision, would actually be a far more aggressive position than even the city is willing to argue. Otherwise, the court would have to read the statute exactly as it's written. However, as written, because of the fact that the organization of an employer is a matter of inherent managerial policy, it takes it out from under the rubric of of an unfair labor practice. Then one would just say, okay, then in all circumstances, it's okay regardless of intent which that's not the position that the city takes. Yeah, so now we're we're kind of in the thick of the argument and found ourselves in a strange place where it seems like probably most people agree that the true plain language shouldn't be the thing dictating what happens in this case. So rather than that, we get into a more pragmatic discussion of what inherent managerial policy means. So the city's arguing that uh, the portion of the Court of Appeals reasoning that determined that the city's actions were not part of the city's managerial authority was incorrect because the type of uh, budgetary restructuring that the city was undergoing in response to concerns about safety and finances uh, falls within its inherent managerial policy as defined by the statute. The provision in the inherent um, managerial policy definition, which which speaks specifically to organizational organization, to budget, to selection of personnel, etc. However, in trying to test the bounds of what could reasonably constitute a valid inherent managerial policy reason to eliminate all members of a union bargaining unit, uh, the court unsurprisingly came up with a few hypotheticals. Council, let me ask you what your, the city's view is with regards to its inherent managerial uh, authority. Um, and let me give you a hypothetical situation. Let's, and I'm not saying that is this case, but let's say a city, um, a mayor and a city council run on a platform that they want to get rid of all unions in the city. And the first thing they do on the first day after they're elected 
is do a restructuring that gets rid of all union members in, a, in several departments. And they're very overt and candid about it, saying, we hate unions. So that exercise of inherent managerial authority, would that violate the unfair labor practices provision of PELRA? The city attorney did a great job responding to Justice Lillehaug's hypothetical, which probably sounds easy when we play it for you on the show, but you should know by now, uh, like 90% of attorneys fail at this. Um, so uh, do credit to the city's attorney here. I believe it would. And the reason is because inherent the inherent managerial policy provision gives public employers discretion to be able to fashion their workplace. But that doesn't mean that public employers can abuse discretion. And it is an abuse of discretion to make decisions such as that simply to abolish unions. Uh, however, uh, Justice McKaig hopped on board and uh, altered that hypo a little bit afterwards and uh, gave the attorney a little more trouble. Counsel, can we take Justice Lillehog's hypothetical but remove the statements that were made that were anti-union? just read on a platform that they were going to work on the budget and balance the budget of the city. And so then they take office and they eliminate um, positions in the police department that are union and, and move them to part-time. Would that be a violation? You could see the court working through the issue, through the hypothetical. So after that, um, the court started wondering whether the statute requires the court to consider the intent of an employer when determining uh, whether an action falls under uh, managerial policy. You know, as I look at the list of unfair labor practices in subdivision two, many of those could also overlap and, and, and bleed into or have, say, budgetary implications, which, as I'm hearing you say, that is something that over which the city has inherent managerial authority. I believe the line is when the city's act is purposely designed to subvert a union, is to prevent the union from being able to operate, if that is the purpose. It depends on what the underlying motivation was. So you're, you're adding an intent element? And the justices uh, were kind of, appeared to be kind of struggling in the moment to reconcile that with uh, a working version of the statute. Counsel, uh, if, we have, if you're urging us to read an intent element into 2-2, can you tell us exactly how it would read um, I've got the statute in front of me. What, what words would you insert into 2-2 to make clear that there's an intent element? As a final argument, the city of Brainerd's attorney here claims that it didn't, quote-unquote, bust this union when it eliminated all positions that happened to have been held by the entire local bargaining unit of the union. The, the statement that we abolished the union is just far too broad, and it doesn't mean that the union doesn't continue to have continuing rights, and it doesn't have continuing powers. And the city argues a few points to make this argument. So first, the city attorney makes the argument that the employees retain rights even when all of the positions in that bargaining unit have been eliminated. The firefighters retain some rights even after they lose their jobs. For instance, they can be recalled back to the city if those positions are, are um, reinstated. So they could be reinstated throughout the term of that bargaining agreement. So clearly there is, there continues to be some sort of relationship between the city and the union. So the union was not rendered busted or powerless by this maneuver. Second, the union, according to the city, still exists. 
specifically because it operates within a larger international structure. So even though the local positions had been eliminated, the city argues that it could not have been abolished, um, given that the larger structure was still intact. The union is an international union, as its name would, would imply. It has uh, bargaining units all throughout the state of Minnesota. What we're talking about here is a bargaining unit with five members. And so um, when the city um, eliminated those positions, it was eliminating five members of a, of a union that has members all throughout the state of Minnesota. The union right now is a party to this to this litigation. I don't know how it would continue to be a, a party if the city had actually abolished it. This particular argument was met with both support and skepticism from various members of the court, divided pretty clearly along recognizable lines. And I'm wondering if on this question about unfair labor practice and whether what the city did here violates uh, provision um, in the uh, other section of the statute relating to unfair labor practices with respect to the existence of an employee organization. Is the district court's um, footnote one about this sort of larger organization, is that at all relevant? You're not making the argument that to destroy, to undermine the existence of a union, you have to destroy the whole international national, that's an international union, the IAT, the International Firefighters Union. That's not, the local bargaining unit is who you bargain with, and that's what's relevant here, right? It's not the whole, that would be like saying you have to get rid of every teacher in the state because Education Minnesota represents every teacher in the state instead of just focusing on the school district local union. That doesn't make any sense at all. This actually reminds me quite a bit of the huge uh, legislature v. governor case um, from, what, a couple years ago now? Like, it seems like the court somewhat regularly has to confront this weird conceptual idea of like, if you knock out a thing in practice, but it's still there in theory or in law or, or somehow, um, are we gonna be upset about that or, or not? Mm -hmm. Representing the firefighters in this case is Marshall Tannick of the law firm Meyer Use Tannick. Thank you, may it please the court, counsel. I'm Marshall Tannick, I represent the appellant in this, the respondent in this case, rather, the uh, Firefighters Local uh, 4725 from the city of Brainerd and its president, Mark Turner. Mr. Tannick's arguing that uh, eliminating the full-time positions here violated PELRA because it interfered with the employees and their union, and PELRA prohibits such interference. What the city of Brainerd has done here creates a serious threat to the collective bargaining process in Minnesota and to public sector unions in Minnesota and perhaps elsewhere as well. It also constitutes a clear and unmistakable unfair labor practice under our Public Employees Labor Relations Act. The union's making the argument that uh, meeting interference under the labor law statute doesn't even require elimination, as was the case here. The appellate court felt, I believe, that it was sufficient to, uh, uh, to uh, 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 resolve this case under Section 2, which is the interference clause, which does not require abolition of a union, either at an international level or a local level. The word is interfere, not abolish. Even still, the union argues that the fact that the city did eliminate all positions suggests that this was interference because the union now ceases to functionally exist. It certainly shows that there was an interference with the existence of the union because the union doesn't, as a practical matter, exist anymore since all of there's no, there's no contract anymore in existence. The union, there's no jobs 
and there's no, uh, there's no functioning union, be, union because of what the city did. So the way it went about this and the effect of what it did both constitute unfair labor practice under the interference provision. So that in itself is the, uh, is a, constitutes an interference with the existence and administration of the union. A union can't administer itself if it no longer exists, and it, can't, uh, it, can't, it doesn't exist when all of the yeah. jobs of its members are taken away. Justice Anderson uh, was less than convinced and tried to test this uh, argument with a hypothetical. But certainly government entities can lay off individuals in appropriate circumstances for financial reasons. That's not what happened here. Council, uh, let's assume a different set of facts. Let's assume the city decides um, to reorganize the department, whatever you call it, and three employees lose their, their employment. Is that inherent managerial authority? Is the is the city within its rights at that point? But just dealing with the legal issue here, um, from your from your position, it's the fact that all of the union positions were abolished that changes the character of this. Finally, the respondent union's attorney, uh, Marshall Tannock, addresses this inherent managerial authority provision and ends up arguing that this situation here, elimination of all full-time Brainerd Fire Department firefighters, doesn't properly fall within Pelra's caveat of inherent managerial authority. So the attorney ends up arguing that a city's decision to budget, which is part of the inherent managerial authority, cannot violate other laws like Pelra. The decision by a government entity to so-called save money cannot violate other laws. For instance, a city could say, we are going to save money by not paying our employees minimum wage. Or a city could say, we're going to say, we're in a budget crunch. We need employees to work more time, but we're not going to pay them overtime. So essentially the argument is, if we interpret the definition of inherent managerial authority too broadly, then it would swallow Pelra as a whole. As Justice Hudson pointed out, I'm sorry, Justice Hudson pointed out, many decisions by governmental entities impact budget or financial considerations. In fact, almost all do in one sense or another, but merely to say we're doing this to save money cannot be a, 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 does not give them immunity from an unfair labor practice. So the respondent union attorney doesn't do the best job outlining how to reconcile the prohibition on employee organization interference and the inherent managerial authority of the employer, he actually denies that there is even any conflict between what an employer is allowed to do under its inherent managerial authority and what it is prohibited from doing as an unfair labor practice. If you assume that there's a conflict between these two statutes, the unfair uh, labor practice provision that you rely on and the inherent management uh, policy provision that the city relies on. If you assume that there's a conflict there, um, I wonder what whether or not um, looking to the motivation for the city would uh, for the city's action would be a way to reconcile those two statutory provisions. I, I'll say there uh, there is no conflict in our view between those statutes. They, they're independent, they exist separately, and they, and they can coexist. However, I understand you want me to assume that there is some type of conflict. I'm not sure what the conflict is that I'm supposed to assume is, but assume that... Well, the conflict, I mean, <laughs> the conflict is the city says, look it, we get to decide. I mean, right. the statute specifically says the number yeah. of personnel, that's for us to decide. Yeah. And you say, well, no, because that effectively destroyed right. the union. So that's the conflict. Okay, so a couple odds and ends. 
from oral argument before we get to predictions and get out of here. Uh, one, the city's attorney at one point makes a football analogy, and we'll play it for you here. Can you accidentally interfere? Sure. You can accidentally interfere with lots of things. You can, uh, sure, you, the interference occurs because you're uh, impeding or blocking or obstructing something from occurring. If I could use a football analogy, pass interference, for instance, or a, a defender in a, pa in a football game may interfere with a ball being thrown to a receiver. The chief attempts to kind of uh, spar with this analogy and doesn't uh, fare that well. So we'll play that for you. To a receiver. I hardly think that's accidental. Well, no. It's the point of it. No, it, no, it's not necessarily. A, a player could trip. Let's say a, a defender trips and falls and hits a, and strikes the offensive player. That still could be interference, even though there wasn't an intent. Or the player could actually be going for the ball, not intending to interfere, but the effect of it interferes. Now, um, I, I don't think that she's hitting it on the head. However, like, speaking of epidemics in the legal profession, sports analogies, like... Oh, God. Sports analogies everywhere. And I say this as somebody possibly addicted to watching sports. Just like overused, not very good, not interesting, not incisive. And uh, I'm going to read this as Justice Gilday uh, rejecting the whole premise that these are uh, viable, useful legal arguments. And I support her. I like that interpretation. One other notable aspect of oral argument would be um, Marshall Tannock confusing Justice Hudson and calling her Justice Wright. Well, as Justice Wright pointed out, any, a city, a, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry. Um, Which one, if you are arguing before the Minnesota Supreme Court, please, please know the names of the justices, but also please don't confuse the only two black women that have ever served on the Minnesota Supreme Court. Insert 10 minutes of just Allison and me cringing in silence. Especially like if you're, I, I think Mr. Tannock has argued before the court before, um, and maybe that's how he got himself into this weird snafu. But like, if you have any shade of doubt, if you are like only 99 out of 100 times getting the names right, just say, say your honor, justice. justice. Man, There's nobody's so going to be mad. Just don't try and show off. Yeah, and Yikes. we get it. Like, mistakes happen, but this one caught our attention. So, Mark, who is going to win this case? It looked like a union win to me. I found it a, a strange case. Like, I, I don't know that a satisfying uh, definition of this managerial authority caveat to Pelra was actually arrived at or will be established in the court's opinion. And to be fair to them, like, you know, federal labor law is a mess. Uh, and it's a pretty hard distinction to draw between essentially, like, can employers get to do the things employers want? And uh, what happens when those things inevitably uh, lead to significant harm coming to a union? So I don't envy the court or the attorneys trying to uh, figure this out. But it's a pretty good fact pattern for the union, and they seem to have a pretty sympathetic court overall. I tend to agree. I think inherent managerial authority is a very amorphous concept, so you're going to end up coming down here on probably more policy preference on power of unions and where you think that division of authority and power should lie. And based on oral argument, it sounds like we might end up with a classic 5-2 split here. Looking like a 5-2. Uh, Allison, what did we learn from the case today? 
Today, we learned from the case that if you're going to eliminate a union in its entirety, pick a union of less handsome people than firefighters because you will lose at the Minnesota Supreme Court. Yeah, huge mistake. Um, thank you for listening to The Common Law. You can check us out at thecommnlaw.com. You can go there, get your CLE credit for this episode for free. Um, all you have to do is fill out a little form. You can also, uh, while you're on the website, check out our free CLE calendar. And thank you, as always, to our communications directors, Chloe and Joy, uh, to our sponsor, Michael Schultz, and to you for listening. Have a nice one, commoners. <laughs> now we're just Whoa. like, <laughs> <laughs> just go fast. Just say it really fast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great.